Since I mentioned last week that verse 3 through 14 is actually all one long sentence in the original language, I've debated several times with myself whether to preach the entire sentence as one message or it could easily be and arguably should be broken down into at least three parts and we could spend several weeks on each one of those parts. But ultimately, I want us to see the apostles' overarching theme in these verses. So buckle up, I guess. Um, While there are a lot of topics touched on in this text, I assure you we're not going to deal with all of them or any of them in the detail that we could, but I am convinced that Paul has one single overarching thought in mind. So let's read Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Christ Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ and whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the many wonderful works that you have determined to accomplish in us and for us and for your glory. We thank you for your love and for the daily heaping of benefits upon us as your people. We know, Lord, that you alone are worthy of glory and honor and power and We ask, Lord, that you would find our worship acceptable in your sight this day. Father, you know and and we know that we need to refocus the priorities of our lives. We need to remember how you love us supremely so that we might serve you obediently. Please, Lord, grant to me the physical and spiritual strength to preach your word with clarity and faithfulness and authority. 
Lord, please bless your word according to your promise that you'll always accomplish your purpose. And we ask this in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen. When given the opportunity to speak on their favorite topics, humanity erupts with enthusiasm. We have no shortage of words of praise to declare our admiration over those things that we enjoy. Children will speak for hours quoting their favorite television characters. Adults will happily share the good news of their favorite restaurant that they just found. Stadiums full of sports fans will stand and shout and cheer for the team that they love. We are not short of enthusiasm, but it is frequently misdirected. It's possible that since the Apostle Paul is writing this letter, and it's not to address any specific problem, that it is in this letter that he gets to begin with this sort of full-throated declaration of praise unlike any other. This is the language of worship. We, we could put this to music. The Apostle Paul sounds these chords of praise here and then lends a voice to each part of the Godhead showing how each individual part of the Trinity has worked in the salvation that's been brought to us. There is no better introduction to his meaning than the one that he gives himself. As he's introduced in verse 1, he says that he's the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He addresses himself to the church at Ephesus, the, those who are faithful in Jesus and children of God. And then in verse 2, he greets them with a declaration of grace and peace of God. He then writes in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Right away, the apostle sounds a note that brings both clarity and questions. The clarity in verse 3 is that the apostle sees the object of worship as God. In all three persons of the Godhead, he is to be worshipped. Can you see how verse 3, just verse 3, is a Trinitarian statement. God is Father. He is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, and He operates as the Holy Spirit in bringing us spiritual blessings. This serves as an excellent introductory phrase to this sort of massive sentence that we're about to see. The whole passage is focused on the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now that's the clarity, but the question comes with this word blessed and how Paul uses it twice in verse 3. Is it Paul's point to say that God is blessed, as in blessed be God, the very first words of that sentence? Or is Paul just trying to describe that we are blessed? As he goes on to write, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We have to know the answer to that if we're going to understand Paul's meaning in the passage as a whole. Why is he outlining some sort of multi-directional blessing? Do we bless God or does God bless us? The clear answer from Scripture is yes. It's both. We bless God and God blesses us. Both are true 
but they are not the same. They do not happen in the same way. While Paul uses the same word here, the way we bless God is not equivalent to the way God blesses us. The word he uses here in Greek is eulogio, which is where we get our word eulogy from. If someone dies and you give the eulogy, the expectation is that you speak good words about them. The idea is that you praise, you you honor that person, you speak of them with approval. So it is fitting to say of God, as the Psalms repeatedly do, and as we sang this morning, bless the Lord, or we will bless the Lord, or bless the Lord, O my soul, all that's within me will bless his holy name. Or maybe you remember from our Passover demonstration a while back. It is very typical of common Jewish prayers to begin with, Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe. When we bless God, our blessing is praise because he is deserving of that praise. But when the Lord blesses us, we are not deserving of praise. We bless or we praise God because of his goodness and he blesses us in a demonstration of that goodness. So in this multi-directional blessing, we bless God because he is good and God blesses us by doing good. But a word of caution here because this is not done as an exchange. God is not doing good to us as a means of returning the favor for us speaking good of him. It's not like that idea of the prosperity gospel of you praise God and he'll give you stuff. Paul says that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. The blessings of God that he's describing here are primarily spiritual in nature. Paul defines them by saying the blessings are in heavenly places. Now, what we don't know yet, because we've just started in this letter, is that that term, in heavenly places, is going to become a repeated theme throughout the letter to Ephesians. You can glance ahead with me if you want to. He's going to say in chapter 1, verse 20, that the Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and raised up to sit at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says that we are raised up together with Christ to sit with him in heavenly places. In chapter 3, verse 10, there are spiritual beings in heavenly places that see the wisdom of God made evident in his blessings to the church. And even in chapter 6, verse 12, as he famously talks about the spiritual warfare in which we're engaged, he describes that spiritual warfare as being, quote, against spiritual wickedness in high places, and it's the exact same words that he's using there. This heavenly places is where Christ is, it is where we will be, it's where the created angels reside, and it is even where some evil forces plot against us. In essence, Paul's not arguing for 
physical blessings of God coming to mankind when he says he has blessed us. This is not picturing your new car or your new house or your healthy family. Those things may very well be blessings from God, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. I mean, let's not forget, he's in prison when he wrote this. He's writing about a spiritual reality that transcends this world. His body is imprisoned, but his soul has been made free in Christ. It's going to be evident as we continue that the salvation of your soul is what he has in view. And yet it's more than just one spiritual blessing. He's blessed us, he says, with all spiritual blessings or every spiritual blessing we know every good and perfect gift comes from the father of lights who's perfect and has no variableness in him the the visual here is like it's a single continuous flow of never-ending blessings raining down on us from the father son and spirit so what's your enthusiasm level for this If you can happily quote your beloved TV characters or you can share the good news of your favorite restaurant or you can shout glory toward the sports team of your choice, why isn't the praise of God continually on our hearts? Verse 3 appeals for us to ask this question. How How often do you find yourself blessing the God who is continually blessing you? Y'all, that's just verse 3. That's where Paul gets started. The, The whole text this morning is this doxology of praise towards God that just sort of erupts off the page. And it insists that we have ample reason to praise God the Father and praise God the Son and praise God the Holy Spirit for the goodness shown to us by each one of them. We should praise God because his goodness, when you think of praising God, you understand you're praising him because he's good to you in ways that have have nothing to do with what you're experiencing right now at this moment. Although he is blessing us right now at this moment, we should praise God, Paul says, because he has blessed us eternally. I don't know how we get our our minds wrapped around because our our minds are finite and how do we get our our heads wrapped around this text that stretches like verse 4 from before the foundation of the world to verse 10, the fullness of time when Christ gathers all things to himself. When we talk about, well, God is good to us all the time, we need to adjust what all the time is in our thinking. Through this text, what we'll see is we should praise God the Father for election and adoption, praise God the Son for redemption and forgiveness, and praise God the Holy Spirit for sealing and security. Let's look at this of praising God the Father for election and adoption first. Pick up at verse 4. According as he has chosen us, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, 
to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 4 speaks to the idea of election. It is a doctrinal truth that the world, and frankly many Christians, find offensive, but it is nonetheless true. I would encourage you to think about your position or your thoughts on election in these terms. What is the first cause, the first action that brought you to salvation? Paul says the first cause is that God the Father has, quote, chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. The first cause is not in your heart and your mind. It is found in the heart of mind and mind of God in eternity past. It is with God alone. It predates your existence because it predates creation. Now there are those who describe election here in a very odd way. They will say, well, yeah, election means that God looked down through the tunnel of time and he saw those who would choose to trust him and based on their free will decision to trust him in salvation, God then chose them, he elected them to salvation. That kind of view makes man the first cause in salvation. It obscures, it obscures the truth about God's nature. I assure you, the God who created heaven and earth has never looked down through the tunnel of time and learned anything that he didn't already know. He knows all things. He transcends time. But just for the sake of argument, let's apply that to kind of a test case. Let's use Abram as an example. Abram was sinful. He was an idol-worshipping man from an idol-worshipping family in Ur of the Chaldees. So let's say that God looked down through the tunnel of time and saw that Abram would trust him. And because of that, God elected Abram. And then because God elected Abram, God spoke to Abram and called him to faith. Then what is the first cause? Is it that Abram chose God or that God chose Abram? Because the reason Abram chose God is because God spoke to him. In this logic, God would not have done what God did unless Abram obeyed his call, and Abram wouldn't have done what Abram did because God wouldn't have called him to begin with. The end result is this this nonsensical loop of, well, God chose Abram because Abram chose God because God chose Abram because Abram chose God. It is hard to fathom election as the Bible presents it. And to be fair, it, it is hard. But the simplicity with which Paul writes it here makes it undeniable. Before anything existed, so long before anyone else acted, God made a sovereign choice. The Father's choice of who he would save is the first cause in salvation. Paul explains the purpose of election as he says here in verse 4 that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. I can assure you, my friends, that without the sovereign action of God, you would have no hope of being holy and blameless. Holiness is an attribute of God himself, 
in which he is entirely set apart from sin. And his purpose in election is that those people he chose would be holy because he is holy. That we would be set apart from the world. And though we have sinned, and surely we are to be blamed for that sin, through the choice of the Father and the work of the Son, we have been made righteous and blameless in Christ. Now throughout this this text, Paul presents some motivating factors of why God did what God did. Why did God do this? The motivating factor in verse 4, you see it in the last two words, in love. Now when you look at verse 4, it's a, a pretty complex sentence that we're dealing with this morning, and it's not perfectly clear whether that in love is connected backward to the act of God choosing, right? He chose us to be holy and blameless before him in love. Or whether that in love describes the next phrase in verse 5, in love he has predestinated us to the adoption of children. And yet either way, God's electing those that he would save and God determining to adopt those who he would save, those are not exclusive from each other. Love is the motivating factor for both. Election and adoption are both part of God's sovereign will and the motivating factor is because he loved us. Don't for a moment get lost in this text and forget the truth that your faith in Jesus Christ is confirmation that God loves you. He loves you. He loves you as his own child because he has determined to make you his child. If election is a hard word, then when we get to verse 5, the word predestination causes just as much consternation with people. In the past, I was asked to come preach at a church, and I was glad to help out. And I didn't preach this text. I wasn't preaching on election or predestination. But apparently, one of the men sensed that there was something different about me, and he asked later, Like, do you believe in election and predestination? And when I told him yes, he's like, well, we don't believe election and predestination here. How can we say that? The, The words are here. They're in the text. It's not hidden. It's not obscured. And this passage is many others. It says God has chosen. God elects. He's predestinated us. It's okay if you want to say, well, I don't believe what you believe about it. But you got to believe something about it. Because the words are here. And Paul uses this word predestinated us, and it's pretty obvious what that word means. In fact, predestination is not a complicated word at all. When you woke up this morning and got dressed and got in your car, you ended up here, and that wasn't an accident. You had a destination determined before you started. That was your predestination. That's what it means, that the end of the journey is determined before the journey started. In this case, God the Father, who elected to make some holy and blameless before him, also predestinated those same individuals to be children adopted into God's family by the work of Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. 
that's where he's taking us. That's the, the destination that he predetermined. Just like being adopted into a family requires the loving choice and determination of parents to accept that child as their own, adoption into the father's family is grounded in his love and his will. But becoming part of God's family is more than just having a judge bang a gavel and say, you are adopted. I've said many times that our daughters dodged a genetic bullet by being adopted by Joy and I instead of being born to us. Because they have the chance to assimilate anything that might be good about us, but they're not genetically predisposed to the bad stuff. But for any of us who are adopted into the family of God to be children of the Father requires the work of our perfect older brother Jesus taking our sin onto himself and giving his righteousness to us so that we can be part of that family. The goal is that we're conformed to the image of God's Son that we'll look like him. There will be a family resemblance. So that this family of adopted children love like him and act like him and live like him. The adoption here is not just a, a change of status, it's a change of the essential nature and behavior of a person. Being a child of the father means that there are certain things of the father that get attributed to you. When when the Jewish religious leaders argued with Jesus, they tried to use the argument, but we're the children of Abraham. Remember what Jesus said? Well, if you were the children of Abraham, you would act like Abraham acted. I knew Abraham. You're nothing like him. And if God was your father, you would love me because God loves me. But you're not doing that because you're not like him. You are not his children. By the way, You want to know whose children you are? You're of your father the devil because you're acting like he acts. Through God's predetermined choice, we have been adopted into his family. We're children of the father. We're brothers and sisters of one another. We're united with Jesus, the only begotten son of God in faith. And ultimately, when we get down to verse 11, there are even eternal consequences to this adoption because it says we've obtained an inheritance. In fact, it says we're predestinated to it according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. There is no point in this little journey Paul's taking us on that he is going to let go of the idea that God's choice is the first cause in every aspect of salvation we might describe. And for anybody who wants to change the emphasis from God chose me and change it to God chose me, well, Paul's going to get to you over in Ephesians chapter 2 and say there is nothing for you to brag about. We should praise the Father for election and adoption. Second, we should praise the Son for redemption and forgiveness. The focus on God the Son, Jesus Christ, actually begins 
at the end of verse 6 in our text, the Father, it says, has made us accepted in the Beloved. You might want to make a notes there in your Bibles about who that beloved is. That is Jesus. You have been made accepted in Jesus, the beloved Son of God. We've got nothing to brag about because we're only acceptable to the Father by the work of his beloved Son. It's clear that's who Paul's writing about as he describes the beloved. And then he says in verse 7, in whom, in that beloved, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Well, verses 7 through 10 are clearly focused on Jesus the Son. The whole letter is that way. There's really no room in Paul's thinking for some other sort of category of our lives that are outside of Christ. You can see in verse 3, he talks about being in Christ. In verse 5, it's by Jesus Christ. In verse 6, we're accepted in the beloved. In verse 10, All things are in Christ. In verse 10, it's even in him. In verse 12, he trusted in Christ. In verse 15, faith in the Lord Jesus. The entire letter we could go on just like everything in the Bible. It is Christological. It is entirely consumed with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here the focus turns first to Jesus in the aspect of him being our redeemer. We are redeemed by his blood, Paul says. Redemption tends to be a strange theological word for us, but it essentially means to be set free from slavery. In the Old Testament, a man could become a slave as a result of economic problems. He could be so indebted that His only means of covering what he owed was to become a servant or a slave of another. Y'all, many folks in American history got here as indentured servants. They booked passage to the New World based on the agreement that they would serve a certain amount of time, so many years, and the only way they could be set free from that is if some relative came along and paid the price necessary to set them free. This becomes a very good picture of the work of God in salvation. You know, in Exodus, as God brought the Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery, it was said that he redeemed them. Now the Apostle Paul says, we have been redeemed. We have been liberated from slavery. But you and I were never in slavery to to Egypt or to indentured servitude. We were slaves to sin. And Paul says in verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You and I were slaves to sin. We were imprisoned by it, owned by it. And yet we have been liberated by Jesus. And when the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. This isn't something we're waiting to happen in the future. Through faith in Jesus, Paul presents it as a present reality. You're free. It's done. So when Paul writes about this 
Same thing in Colossians. Remember, he wrote Colossians at the same time. Here's what he says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Startingly, startingly similar. You've already been brought out of the power of darkness and translated, conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love or in the beloved, he says, in Ephesians. You've been made part of his family because of this redemption and forgiveness of sins. Both passages, Colossians 1.14 and our text here in verse 7, stress it this way though. You have been redeemed through his blood. Redemption makes no sense as a concept unless it comes at a price. If the Lord Jesus has brought you out of the slavery of sin, it's not because he stole you unfairly, it's because he paid the price of that redemption. The price, Paul says, is you have redemption through his blood. You've been bought with a price. And what a price was required. The life's blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was necessary to secure your freedom from sin. Nothing less than that would be acceptable. The Apostle Peter writes it this way in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. The steep price paid by our Savior as he went to the cross and shed his blood for sinners is a price paid for our redemption. And it is a measure of God's love for us. Love without cost is love without worth. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. As Jesus tortured and and bleeding from a Roman scourge, had his hands and feet nailed to the cross, blood flowed down, it brought death to him, it brought life for us. The precious blood of Jesus, that is the cost of redemption. And it's also the cost of forgiveness. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Have you contemplated what a rare commodity forgiveness is? You know in your own life, if you have done some wrong, you've committed some hurtful trespass, that obtaining true, genuine, full forgiveness is rare. Many husbands and wives carry around baggage of guilt so that even when there appears to be forgiveness, sort of that specter of past transgressions is always looming. It never fully leaves. We say forgive and forget, but forgetting doesn't happen and forgiveness is often tentative at best. But consider that God, who is perfectly omniscient and could not forget, he knows all things, he says he has forgiven you. 
Though he knows everything you've done in the past, though he knows the hidden sins in your heart today, though he knows the offenses that you will yet commit against him, which you yourself don't even know yet. Through Christ, you're redeemed and forgiven. What tremendous grace and love it could only come from God. In Mark 2, when Jesus healed the paralyzed man who was lowered down through the roof, he said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And if you remember, the Jewish leader's complaint was, who is this who can forgive sins? Nobody can forgive sins but God. They weren't wrong. Real forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that comes in this text is only found in God. But it's what we have, Paul says. And so, Christian friend, let me ask you, why would you walk through this life clinging to your own guilt and shortcomings when God says he has forgiven you? Why would you not take him at his word that he is a loving father and he is not holding a grudge against you? Why would you not declare his praises and live in his love, this gracious God who through Christ says you are truly, genuinely, fully forgiven? His plan of redemption and his willingness to forgive, listen, it's not unknown to us. God doesn't intend for this plan to be a secret. He has given us revelation through his word, just like this, in order for us to know. Paul says in verse eight, he has abounded toward us in wisdom and prudence or wisdom and understanding is what that means. And he goes on to say, <coughs> look at verse nine. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. We know the mystery. What mystery? Well, there's a few things you could point to in regards to the mystery that's made known to us. It could be the mystery of his plan of salvation that was slowly revealed through the Old Testament, now is made known in Christ. But it's evident that Paul here means something even more specific than that. Look at verse 10. The mystery that is made known to us is that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Simply, the mystery is that there is a coming day. Paul says the fullness of time, or you may remember from a certain angel in Revelation 10, no more delay, right? in which all of creation that God has made and all the redeemed that God has purchased are going to be brought together under the sovereign rule of King Jesus. We know this. As surely as we know that we're redeemed by the blood of Christ and forgiven of our sins through faith in him, we know that he will return and rule and reign over all things. We praise God the Father for election and adoption. Praise God the Son for forgiveness and redemption. And praise God the Holy Spirit for sealing and security. I want you to look at this last section as we come to it in verses 11 through 14. Clearly the Apostle Paul is saying a lot in this one long sentence, right? But he is not wandering aimlessly. It's a cohesive unit. Up in verse 5, he wrote that we are 
predestinated to adoption into God's family. And now toward the end in verse 11, he says that adoption's complete because we have obtained an inheritance just like children do because we were predestinated, he says. You see, if I was writing a sentence like this, it would be a total scatterbrained mess. But Paul is, is very focused and on target here. This final section deals primarily with the work and worthiness of the Holy Spirit to be praised. What God the Father has chosen by election, God the Son has redeemed with his blood, and God the Holy Spirit draws and secures in faith. One work of the Holy Spirit is to bring us life. Paul's going to talk about that in chapter 2. And appoint us to faith in Jesus that we would trust in him. So look at verse 13. In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit who inspired the written word ensures us that we hear the word of the gospel, and then authenticates us as believers and part of God's family. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, Paul says. I'm thankful we've dealt with the idea of this word seal in our study in Revelation recently, so only a, a, maybe a short explanation will suffice. A seal is a stamp of authenticity and ownership. If a legal document was rolled up and sealed, that document was closed, it was secured, it was made tamper-proof, and the, the signet of the owner was placed into it, and it authenticated that document that was stamped and sealed. Or think of it this way, if you want a different way to look at it, if you're a fan of, of Western movies. Think of branding cattle. The seal is placed on that cattle and it ind indicates ownership. Someone could claim to own that calf, but if his brand wasn't on the calf, it didn't belong to him. Thankfully, we're not sealed like that. We're authenticated as children of God by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. The idea is similar, though. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 9. But you are, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Right? Without the Spirit, we are not adopted. We're not part of God's family. We've not been redeemed. The Holy Spirit is this seal for believers. It's the mark of authenticity and ownership by God. And if the Holy Spirit is not within you, then you're counterfeit. You're not God's. You're not adopted. You're not redeemed. You're not forgiven. You've got no inheritance. Paul says this is the Holy Spirit of promise or the promised Holy Spirit. And I think there he's referring to the promise of Jesus in that upper room discourse in John 14 through 16. Several times Jesus promised the Holy Spirit as a, as a comforter who would indwell and guide the believers 
Actually, in connection with this idea of having an adoption and inheritance, Paul might be referring to the promise of Jesus in John 14, verse 18, when he promises the Holy Spirit and says, I will not leave you as orphans. Right? You're going to be adopted. You're going to have an inheritance. When we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, we are secure. Anytime someone asks, well, is it possible for a person to lose their salvation? You have to understand the real issue that needs to be dealt with is their view of the work of the Holy Spirit. Too often what they mean by that is, well, what if I sin? Or what if I start to question my faith? But the Holy Spirit is the key to understanding a believer is eternally secure. Paul is clearly saying in verse 13 that when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. How long are you sealed? Can you be unsealed? Well, Paul brings up the sealing of the Holy Spirit again in this letter. Look over at Ephesians chapter 4 for just a second. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Until the day of redemption. The Father is not going to unchoose you. He's not going to unadopt you. There is no point at which the blood of Jesus is not precious enough to have redeemed you. The Holy Spirit who has sealed you, he will keep you sealed, Paul says, unto the day of redemption. No, a believer who is truly saved will never be lost. And if that's too complicated, just trust the words of Jesus when he said, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life. How long does everlasting life last? You know, if two weeks later you lost it, you didn't have everlasting life because it's got to last forever. But what Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, you're sealed until the day of redemption, might raise a question because it sounds like something future, right? The Holy Spirit has sealed you until the day of redemption. Does that mean that we're not redeemed right now? Because how could Paul say in verse 7 of our text that we have redemption through the blood of Christ? Well, go back to our text and listen to how Paul describes the work of the Holy Spirit in verse 14 again which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. That word earnest means a pledge or a guarantee. It's actually a business term. Any of you bought a house or maybe a car are familiar with the idea of earnest. Right? When, when Andrew and Rebecca bought a house a while back, they gave an offer and they gave earnest money. It's a pledge, it's a guarantee that you're serious about the transaction that you've entered into. So let's say you've got a, a car that you're going to sell and, and I'm, I want to buy it and we agree on a price of just say $7,000. Well, obviously I can't pull $7,000 out of my pocket and hand it to you today. But maybe I could give you something. Let's say for the sake of argument, I give you $250 as earnest money to show that I'm serious about the transaction and that I will be back tomorrow to give you everything else, right? That transaction is then secured 
but when I leave, do I get to leave with your car? Well, no, you'd be foolish to let me leave with the car. In fact, if I don't show up with the rest of the money, what happens to the $250 I gave you? Do I get it back? No, that's not the way earnest money works. Earnest is the security that you're serious and if it's the guarantee that no one will default on that agreement. The earnest is permanent. It's something that you never get to take back. Paul uses that term, earnest or pledge or guarantee, because it's a fitting example of the Holy Spirit in the saving transaction that's taken place. The Holy Spirit is never going to be taken back. He'll never abandon you. He'll never be withdrawn. The difference in the transaction Paul's describing in our illustration of me buying your car is that here the price has already been paid, right? You have redemption, he says in verse 7, and the price of that redemption was the blood of Jesus Christ, which has already been paid. So then what part of this transaction remains? Well, only one. Verse 14, until the redemption of the purchased possession. That's you. You are God's purchased possession. The earnest of the Holy Spirit seals that purchase. The blood of Jesus Christ paid in full the cost for forgiveness and salvation. You've been purchased with his blood. The only part of this transaction that remains is for the Father to come and collect you at the time of his choosing because you're his and he owns you. Y'all, what a sentence this is. It spans time from the Father choosing us before creation all the way till we're gathered together in submission to King Jesus at his return. In this one superlative sentence, spiritual blessings are bestowed and inheritance is obtained, mysteries are revealed. We're elected and adopted and redeemed and forgiven and sealed and secured. Not only is the apostle overflowed with this description of what God has done, we've hardly touched the repeating theme of why God has done it. We just take a moment to scan this text for a cause, for a reason. We find that it's not got anything to do with what we've done. It's not based on anything that we deserve or anything we even desired. Salvation is fully and finally of the Lord. Why does God save sinners? According to this text, well, as Paul outlines this threefold work of the Father and then the Son and then the Holy Spirit, <coughs> he also gives a, a threefold answer matching each of those persons of the Godhead. Why does God save sinners? At the end of verse 5, it's according to the good pleasure of his will. At the end of verse 9, it's according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. At the end of verse 11, it's according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Why does God save sinners? Well, in short, he wanted to. It's an expression of his nature and his desire. It suited the good pleasure of his will. He purposed in himself, Paul says, 
to do it and then actively worked in divine providence and election and adoption and redemption and salvation, securing us so that it comes to pass. And yet even that is not like the full purpose of this tremendous sentence. The Apostle Paul will not stop with the question, why does God save sinners? He also gives an answer in three parts to the question of what should be the sinner's response to what God has done. If we can start to wrap our minds around the concepts of this text, if we could you know, internalize them and they become a part of us, what is the external result? Well, Paul says three times. Look at the answers in verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. In verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory. The final words of verse 14, unto the praise of his glory. And that is the idea of this text. Remember where it began? Blessed be God. There is no room. There is just none. There's no room for apathy in regard to worship and praise of God. So if children can quote their favorite TV characters and adults can, you know, gladly share the good news of their newest restaurant find or stadiums full of sports fans can stand and and cheer the teams they love, then it ought to be evident that we are capable of enthusiasm. We are designed for praise. And yet the only worthy focus of that enthusiastic praise is the God who has saved us. So Paul says, praise the Father for election and adoption. Praise God the Son for redemption and forgiveness. Praise God the Holy Spirit for sealing and security. And so I'll finish by asking again, how often do you find yourself blessing the God who is continually blessing you?